turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. For the church, that work must be done before Jesus comes again. To do that work requires the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it requires men and women in the church who are willing to lay down their lives. In fact, it takes the whole church to lay down its life, and it takes prayer, constant, agonizing, fervent prayer. The church must take the world on her hands and upon her heart. We must travail for the salvation of the world. Jesus prayed in the Lord's Prayer that he taught us to ask the will of God would be done on the earth even as it is in heaven. This work of converting the world 
must absorb our whole attention. It must engross our thoughts. It must rouse us up and set on fire our feelings. And we must pour out these feelings before God in a flood of agony before the world can be converted. Now such prayer is not commonly heard. It's not commonly offered. But the whole church must become a praying church. We must gather around the mercy seat and lie on our face and pour out our prayers with strong cries and tears. We have to come up to the full power of the Holy Spirit. We must not be silent. The kingdom of God is among us already. Now we're going to have to have hearts that heave like volcanoes. And the gospel must be like a burning fire shut up in our bones. And the promises are to, are to them everlasting mountains. We can stand on these promises. God has promised it. The work must be done. And it's going to require incredible sacrifice on our part. It's going to require us to lay everything down for the sake of Jesus Christ. There are no shortcuts. You're listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee. And I'm Alexandra Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. We're happy you've joined us today. I pray that the message we share with you today will disturb your heart and cause you to see the ugliness of the modern church and turn and repent and get in your prayer closet and plead with Jesus for the power of the Holy Spirit to be poured out on your life. I pray today is a turning point for you. Listen carefully to the whole broadcast. Don't let anything pull you away. You need the entire broadcast. And if you'll obey what you hear, your life will be transformed. Jesus Christ came to establish the kingdom of God on the earth. That he intended this kingdom to be a literal kingdom, a kingdom as truly as any of the other kingdoms in this world. That he intended it a kingdom of righteousness and consequently separate from and above all other kingdoms. Christ continually spoke of his followers as a community existing in the midst of another kingdom or community, but having its own laws and own principles and own aims entirely distinct and separate from the world. Jesus not only made this kingdom separate, but he ordained that it should be kept separate. And he did not fail to give the most emphatic cautions and prohibitions between any amalgamation whatsoever between the forces of his kingdom and the forces of the kingdom of Satan in the midst of which Jesus' kingdom was established. Now Jesus put forth the claim that he is the king and sovereign of this kingdom. And as such, 
he demands the highest affection, allegiance, and obedience of the hearts of his subjects. Jesus represents himself as a king in a sense entirely beyond and above all earthly sovereigns. He represents himself as reigning not by virtue of outward power, but by virtue of the inward love, devotion, and adoration of his subjects, and thus more perfectly and completely over their outward lives than any earthly king could pretend to do. The avowed purpose of Jesus Christ is to propagate and extend this kingdom over the whole earth. Now in this respect only was he the originator of a new dispensation, because God already had a kingdom on the earth, but it was of a national and sectarian character, that is the kingdom of Israel. But Jesus Christ came to break down the walls of partition between Jew and Gentile, and to let out, so to speak, the mercy, goodness, and grace of God on the whole human race. Henceforth, there was to be neither Greek nor Jew, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. And just as in Adam all had died, so in Christ should all be made alive. All men should have the opportunity, subject to that free choice, without which a man would be no more capable of salvation than an ox, but subject only to such a choice, every son and daughter of Adam should have the provision in Christ of eternal salvation. Further, Jesus Christ ordained and arranged that this kingdom of his should be propagated in the world by human instrumentality, that is, the kingdom of God comes on the earth through men, women, and children. Now, he has many reasons for this. We don't know all of them. Certainly one is that the human being, having been transformed, restored to the image of God, and inspired with God's love, would be the most effectual ambassador that God could send. Another reason... Christ chose to put his honor on his own brethren after the Spirit, those whom he has redeemed from among men and who have chosen him as their king, with his cross and its consequences, over the pleasures, riches, or honors of this world. Another reason why God has chosen to bring his kingdom on the earth through men, women, and children is that this brings great glory to the Father. The weakness of the human agent exhibiting more perfectly the excellency of divine power. Now we need to notice that the establishment of this kingdom over all the earth means, of course, war. It means resistance and opposition from the nations that already are in possession. It's a wonderful analogy between the establishment of the kingdom of Christ and the subjection of Cana to the Israelites. God had promised that land to Abraham long years before and spoke of it as already belonging to his descendants. Nevertheless, 
They had to go and conquer it in his strength. So God has given the kingdoms of this earth to his son. In the end, the kingdoms of this world are to become the kingdoms of God and of his Christ. But we have to go and conquer them, just as the Israelites had to conquer Cana in the faith and by the strength of our God. It has only been for want of faith that the world has not been conquered long ago. What a delusion many Christians labor under with respect to the extension of the kingdom of God. They have a notion that the kingdom is to take the world by stealth, that men are to be turned to God without any connection of of means with the event that is it's going to be done by some kind of internal miracle and the church has been waiting for this miracle for 1800 years consequently the work is not done because this notion is a direct opposition to the orders and ordination of the king if ever the world is subdued it will be by his servants carrying out the lord's instructions and setting themselves to subdue it It will be by bringing all the wisdom, skill, and force of their humanity allied with divinity as the early disciples did and turning that force upon the rebel world. It will be done by hard, desperate fighting. It is the great fundamental principle laid down in the Bible. No other way, because the nations in possession will never let you subdue them and take them for God without opposition. Christ systematically foretold and depicted this opposition and gave his disciples the understanding that they were going to have to wage war with all the power of those who possessed evil and who profited by evil and that it would be no easy conquest. He told them they would have to go and subdue this evil with good this unrighteousness by righteousness. The spirit of the devil would have to be driven out of man by the power of the spirit of God dwelling in them. Oh, people say, the world is different in these days from what it was in the days of Jesus and Paul. Is it? Try it on the same lines. Do the same things they did. And you'll soon find out how far different it is. The very existence of the spirit of evil is antagonistic to the spirit of good. Good and evil are so dramatically opposed to each other. Therefore, they can never be brought into contact without conflict, without war, and sometimes of the most deadly kind, ending in the death and martyrdom of the saints. The world treated Jesus who was the very personification of the Father's holiness, worse than it ever treated any other human being, because he was the concentration of goodness, and therefore the devil did his worst on him. And just as we approximate to his character, the devil will do his worst on us. Christ taught his soldiers to expect the opposition of devils. This opposition was foretold by Jesus, and his servants were warned against it and provided for it. He said to his apostles when he commissioned them, Behold, I send you forth as sheep among wolves, but lo, I am with you always. And again to Paul, I will be with thee, delivering thee from the people 
and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee. Why? Because he knew the opposition which their mission would provoke. He did not send the disciples to bring peace on the earth. He sent them to bring a sword of separation, dividing asunder of everything evil. There must also come that sort of provoking even the nearest and dearest relatives, people you love, will rise up to persecute those who truly follow Jesus. Now this must continue to be so while good and evil continue in, in contact in the fact that modern Christianity has ceased as a rule to provoke opposition is one of the deadliest signs of its effectiveness. It has no effectiveness. As a rule, the world and modern Christianity go comfortably on together. They are so actuated by one common principle and walk so amiably on that common pathway that you see very little collision between them. The world has very little to complain of, and so it lets them move along. May God help and quickly mend or end it. Further, notwithstanding all the danger involved in this deadly warfare, which Jesus Christ told us it would be, Jesus told them plainly that all men would hate them, that they would probably have to follow Jesus to martyrdom and death, and yet they accepted the mission. Now, it did take them a little time to understand the mission, and to give up their national and sectarian prejudices. Peter, for example, had to receive his lesson through the vision of the sheet let down from heaven before he understand the true genus of his mission. But when he and the other apostles did understand it, and that was the difference between them and modern apostles, when they saw the work to which the master called them, they joyfully embraced it. They did not stop to confer with flesh and blood. They didn't stop to reason what it would cost them to ask about salaries or where they would live or what their friends would think. They embraced the mission and went and carried it out with their lives in their hands. And how magnificently they succeeded. What a large portion of the world they subdued for Christ in comparison with their numbers and facilities. For remember, there were no railways in those days. There were no airplanes, no cell phones, no internet, no cars. They didn't have announcements sent out before they arrived. There were no printing presses to announce their coming with posters and tracks and all kinds of posters. They had none of the facilities which we possess today. But how gladly would they have used them if they had them? What gigantic excess they attained because they carried out their mission on the lines which Jesus Christ had laid down. Is it not true that just in proportion as their successors have followed in their steps, they have been successful in propagating the gospel? We all know that the stars of heaven 
the men and women whose names stand out with extra brilliancy on the page of history. We know them as having been successful in pushing this glorious warfare, and that they were the men and women who took their lives in their hands and followed Jesus without respect to the consequences. They came out straight and clear from the world and set themselves to the work, regardless of what other people might say or do to them. And we know that mighty conquests were achieved by some of them, and therefore we may reason that if all of Christ's professed disciples had followed in the same track, a million times greater results would have been attained. So let me ask a practical question. How many of you have even begun to think about the task? Have even considered the task? How many of you have had the Spirit of God speak to you and you've been baptized by him and you have laid aside half-heartedness and you are now separate from the world? How many of you have eagerly sought to have that live coal from off the altar touch your lips? How many of you today are willing to become serious fishers of men? Have you embraced this mission? Have you decided to follow Jesus, carrying his cross, seeking men and women for salvation? If not, what will you say to him on that great day of account? In looking at the requirements of the king and at the history of the early apostles and disciples, I charge it on modern Christianity that its professors do not even comprehend the first principles of this warfare, much less do they set themselves to carry it out to the ends of the earth. The service rendered to the king and to the kingdom in these days is, alas, with few exceptions, soft, like milk, a very short-weight character. The great effort of the majority of its teachers, judging from their writings, and from what we see and know and hear of their public service and of their private lives, they seem to be more interested in being comfortable all around. Peace, peace is the continual cry when there is no peace. As one of the bishops said a little while ago, we hear a great deal about church defense. We ought to be hearing about church aggression. Is your church, are you aggressively pressing the kingdom of God? Or are you a laid-back consumer of the church? In the great mass of Christians today, there is no fight. And when there is a fight, it's over opinions and ceremonies It's inside the walls of the church instead of with the enemy outside. I am brokenhearted today hearing the news that a large church in the Woodbridge area has let its pastor go. A fight inside the walls. Pastor lost, so he's moving on. 
it will consume that church for the next year as they now try to search for a new pastor and establish themselves in their own comfort in their little circle of religion inside the walls of their building. I find Christians more valiant in defending some ceremony of the church than they are in defending the cross of Christ in the presence of its adversaries. They seem to be much more concerned in propagating their ism, their denominationalism, than the kingdom of righteousness, the kingdom of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Alas, that it should be so, but such is the fact. Jesus Christ did not call us to fight each other, but he called us to present one bold front to the enemy. He bade us go and take captive the hearts and souls of men, and not merely to change their opinions, get a man's heart right, and his opinions will soon follow. But you may be tinkering at his intellect till the hour of his death, and he will not be any closer to heaven, probably nearer to hell, than if you had just let him alone. Modern Christians, as a rule, do not see any need to fight. We often find Christians hiding themselves under vain, empty, and false notions of the sovereignty of God. How often they have made my heart ache when trying to arouse them to do something for the kingdom. They'll say, God is sovereign, and he will accomplish his purposes out of all this sin and ruin. And so they sit comfortably down and let things drift. And they have drifted quite a ways, haven't they? In this so-called Christian country, in this 21st century, they have drifted to about as near to hell as they could without absolutely bringing hell on the earth. They have drifted socially as well as spiritually. Look at the state of our nation, of America. Look at the godlessness, the injustice, the falseness, the blasphemy, the uncleanness, and the debauchery everywhere. Do you ever look at the condition of those things close to your doors and your churches? The worse than heathen beastliness into which thousands of our neglected neighbors, rich and poor, have sunk. Jesus Christ has ordained and provided that his people are to set themselves to stop these torrents of moral and social pollutions. We are to go and beard the lion in his den. We are to face the slaves of sin, open their eyes, and bring them down to Jesus' feet, just as much as his early followers. And never until we do it shall we realize a better state of things in America. All the legislation, education, provision of better housing, social welfare programs, food stamps, all of this won't touch the moral cancer of our country. It won't stop the spring of wickedness and misery. The only thing 
that will stop the unrighteousness in this country is for Christians to rise up and do what Jesus said, which is to bring the kingdom of God on the earth. And strangely, most Christians don't see any need to do this, and they try to quiet those who do. And so we find ourselves having to prove and argue, and preachers have to even show that this is a salvation issue before you can get a bit of service out of most Christians. I was down at a mega church in Washington, D.C., a thousand members, a large Baptist church, and there was one man in the church who was a street preacher, and every single Sunday he would go around and ask, will you come out with me this week on the streets? And people would come up to him in the church, men and women, and would share their testimony of being saved. And he would say, just come out with me and share what you just shared with an unsaved person. And they would say, no, I can't do that. I'm not ready for that. That's, I'm not in a place to do that. They'd have an excuse. And so you have one person out of a church of a thousand who are all supposedly born again, willing to do anything for the kingdom of Jesus. There's no feeling. There's no heart for the fight. There's no desire to see God's kingdom come on the earth. It's as if we just sit around and see everything falling into ruin, and it doesn't bother us at all. As God said of the fallen and false prophets of the Jews, they lay not these things to their hearts. Instead, they lay their own business to their hearts. You see it on their faces of Christian men if their balance is on the wrong side. If bankruptcy stares them in the face, you'll soon find that out. You find Christian men and women laying the welfare of their families on their hearts. When a child is sick or if there's any kind of disgrace or danger, you know about it. And yet these same men and women can walk through the streets, they can see the church torn down, they can see the name of Jesus shamed, used as a curse word, they can see churches closing, members bleeding out, they can see fights within the church, and yet none of this seems to cause any distress or apprehension, any tears or groans. And in fact, they will often manifest anger against the people who urge them to fight. Then they will manifest anger against the enemy. They might say, why are you always after us? Why are you beating us down? Leave us alone. We want peace. We just want to have joy in Jesus. They want to be quiet and comfortable. They want to have their religion in a snug, back-parlor fashion. They hate the idea of fighting. Going out to face a mob? No, that is out of the question. How could you ever think of such a thing? Being mocked and spit on and kicked and hit and perhaps even killed for Jesus? They would think that you were gone insane. The moment anybody attempts to really obey Jesus Christ, they'll cry out, He's crazy. He's a fanatic. 
he isn't even fit to live. But in truth, thus such professing Christians make themselves a laughing stock. The devil says, all right, leave them alone. Let them go to their sanctuaries. Let them have their creeds and liturgies and ceremonies. Let them sing their hymns or their contemporary songs. And let them have fun with their religious entertainments, their Bible classes, their youth retreats, their church potlucks. Don't disturb them, whatever you do. They're among my best and most successful allies. Oh, may God show us these things and help us set to work to awaken every backslidden, lazy Christian within reach of us. And we find further that many in this state are most zealous in what Jesus said, building the sepulchers of the prophets, that is of the saints, the spiritual warriors of bygone times. They are often great at lectures on men like Luther, George Fox, John Wesley, and others. They'll listen most interestedly to a discussion on their heroism, just as they would listen to a lecture on Shakespeare or Milton. But as to imitating their deeds of valor, it never enters their minds any more than if they had been inhabitants of another sphere. They simply go and have their intellects amused, their feelings tickled. It never dawns on them that they are to go and imitate the example of these heroes. They don't perceive that it ought equally to be the absorbing interest of their own lives, and they are equally to be brave men against the devil propagating the kingdom of Christ in the earth. They go home and live the coming week exactly as they lived the week that preceded it. They admire the men who laid down their lives for the king a hundred or three hundred years ago. Perhaps they'll even put up a monument to their memory. But as to doing so themselves or allowing themselves to come into the same circumstances of persecution, they would almost sooner go to hell. I speak the things I know and have witnessed till my heart is sick. Further, I charge it on popular Christianity that its professors are ashamed of their faith in the presence of the enemy. They shrink from any open, straightforward confession of Christ before men. I maintain that it's not confessing him to go to church or chapel once a week amongst those who go the same way you do. They do not confess him on the exchange or in the bank or on the streets of the city. Where do you see anyone in a million who comes out with any thoroughgoing, straightforward confession of Christ before the world? Where? There are few there are a few Roman Catholic or high church monastics, and whatever I may think of their heirs, I always feel a measure of reverence when I pass them. I feel there is a man or woman who is willing to acknowledge his God before men and who is not ashamed to come out and condemn the world by being separate from it 
and entering a protest against its fashions and its follies. How many professing Christians of this day would go in public in any attire or wear any kind of badge that said to men and women, I am a saint, a soldier of Jesus Christ. And yet the soldiers of our nation are proud to do this even in enemy country. I repeat, who is there that dare do it for Jesus? Any profession of Jesus Christ which brings no cross is all nonsense. It is not confession at all. There are plenty of Christians very brave inside their church in the presence of their friends. And they will sing, Onward Christian Soldiers. Or they'll sing, Hold the fort, for I am coming. Well, what fort are they holding? What fort are they holding? Here are two men. One is a professing Christian. The other is an honorable man of the world. They're both, we will suppose, in the same business. Take their lives from day to day, and what is the difference between them? The one goes to church or chapel once or twice on Sunday. On the weekday, he gets up in the morning and has his breakfast. Perhaps he reads prayers out of a book or reads a few passages of Scripture, or perhaps not. This done, and away he rushes to the city, to the business, where he works and thinks and plans with untiring energy till evening to make money. This is what he does six days a week, without giving one hour per day to any kind of service to God or humanity, or even to the affairs of his own children. The other man just does the same thing, only he does not go to church on Sunday or read prayers or read scripture. If you look into the lives of these two men at the end of the week, you can't find that the professed Christian has done one iota for the kingdom of God more than the pagan man. You can't find that he's spoken to anyone about his soul. He would think it out of season to talk about religion in the shop or the or the bank, or the exchange. He has never buttonholed any one of his acquaintance or friends in his own house. He's never knelt down by the side of any poor wandering brother or sister, never visited any sick one or prayed with the dying. He has not done a thing for the Lord Jesus, and yet he will go to chapel and sing, Onward Christian Soldiers, or Hold the Fort on Sunday, as though he'd been living the life of a saint all week long. I ask, why should such a man be called a Christian any more than his neighbor across the way who makes no profession? It is time to wipe away this reproach in the church and to put it out of the power of infidels and atheists to wag their heads and say, what do you do more than others? It's time we drummed out of the professed armies of our Lord all such renegades and hypocrites. The great mass of those modern Christians cannot enter into this fight because they refuse to bear the consequences. Fighting is hard work. 
Whatever sort of fighting it is, you cannot fight without wounds of body, heart, and soul. You cannot be a soldier without enduring hardness. And genteel Christians don't like hardness. They wouldn't have the consequences. They could not bear them. My friends, there is a recording angel, and he keeps a list. A gentleman answered the other day when bewailing his miserable spiritual condition, and one of our friends asked him to go to a holiness meeting, a revival meeting. He answered, not in my town. If it had been in another city and he could have crept in with the crowd into some great congress hall where nobody would have recognized him, he would have gone, but not in his own town. That reveals the secret of thousands of people having resisted the light and lost the blessing they might have had. It would also include those who do go, and when they hear sin confronted, they become angry. How dare you say that about our church? We are respectable people. Never mind that there are alcoholics and wife beaters and all manner of sin within the church, all papered over and pretended that it's not there, but it is there. This is the secret of thousands of people. And the Holy Spirit has been grieved from them. It's the same spirit of false shame which prompted the question of the Pharisees, have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? My brother, my sister, now please listen. While you care what any man or woman on earth thinks about you or the instruments used of God to bless you, never expect to keep your blessing, for you never will. If your heart is still concerned about what people think of you, you are far away from the kingdom of God. That man will go blundering on in his present lean skeleton condition to the grave and probably to hell unless he repents and finds out his mistake and does his first work. Ashamed, ashamed he will be thought fanatical or weak and he won't be mixed up with those people not in my own town, not in my own family, too proud to confess, too proud to confess, not just what I should be and what I'm going through, too proud, would not dare if the heavens depended upon it. One pastor at a revival meeting said to me after the service, I considered coming up and confessing, but what would my people think if I confessed who I really am? He's paid a heavy price for that sin. Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the clouds of glory with his holy angels. Now there's one other area we're going to talk about very quickly today. Many modern Christians refuse to give their substance to carry on the war. You see, the war is impossible without money. I wish it were not so, but I cannot help it. 
the war is as impossible as any other war without money. Men and women must eat however little they manage. They must have traveling expenses. They must have rent for the buildings. They must have money to care for sickness. This war, I say, must have money. And the more war, the more money is wanted. How many of these mongrel Christians, when faced with the needs of the war chest, exclaim, money again, always begging? Now contrast the feelings of these same people when there's a great popular national war on foot. Then what do they say in their newspapers and in their public meetings? They say to their statement, you must ask for grants. You must not stick fast for money. We must win. We must not be beaten for the sake of a few million dollars. Oh, their hearts are in the warfare. Their women would sell ornaments. The men would hand over their balances rather than give up our nation's freedom or greatness. Now then I say that if the Christians had the same true spirit of war, and the spirit which says, I want the world for Christ Jesus. I want my king to reign over the hearts of men. He shall win, be it at the cost of money or blood or all else. If this spirit possessed them, instead of begrudging and reckoning how little they could give and how much they could save by not giving, if they had the spirit of Christ, they would be brokenhearted. So what am I to think? of a band of professed soldiers who are always grumbling about having to give their money to extend the reign of their king whom they profess to love more than all else besides. I do not propose to dwell on the beggarly subterfuge for getting money which these Christians often resort to. I said to a lady a little while ago who was working on an elaborate piece of embroidery for a, 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 a bazaar, why don't you just give the money and use your time for something better? Well, she answered, this will sell for more than it costs. Then reckon it. Count it up. Sell it. Give the money. Don't sit at home making other people's finery. Instead, visit the sick. Seek and save the lost. And I just want to say, it takes money for this radio broadcast. We're still on the AM side of the dial because Christians who have their accounts built up, who have inheritance, who have savings. They're more interested in building their retirement fund than their salvation fund. We should be on the FM side of the dial proclaiming these truths to all of Washington, D.C. Believe me, it would stir up a real war in this city. But instead... I have to come at the end of every month and give the exact dollar amount we need for the coming, for the payment of that month. And then by God's grace, people will eke out 25, 50, 100 dollars and they'll pledge that. Thank God for some who will give a thousand dollars, who will give two thousand dollars. Without that, we wouldn't be on the air. And I'm already looking forward to the end of this month and saying, Lord, am I going to have to do another offertory? Our bill this month is almost $4,000, just a few dollars short. 
Am I going to have to give the exact amount needed and the exact amount will come in and then we say that's victory? Where is the flood? Alexandra went this morning and yesterday morning to the mailbox. There was nothing there. And often for a week there will be nothing there. Often on the internet, on our webpage, three people gave in the last month. Thank God for those three committed Christians. Where are all the rest of you? It takes money to push the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this gospel that we're proclaiming needs to be pushed in Washington, D.C. We have the opportunity with you to confront the powers of darkness in a very unvarnished, straight way and call people to obedience in Jesus. We don't believe in sinning Christians. We believe in Christians who are free in Jesus by the blood of Jesus set free, gloriously set free. Where is your sacrifice? I praise God for the two or three who are sacrificing. But where are the rest of you? Why isn't that box full of checks saying, Pastor, we're standing with you. We're praying for you. Glory be to God. Move forward. Go to the FM dial. We'll pay for it. Some of you could pay for the entire bill and you would not miss it. Instead, you're stashing it away. You're living it in your lifestyle. You're saying, oh, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I better build my barn that I can live in ease. You know, I'm old enough to retire and then some. Am I going to retire? Are you kidding me? How does a soldier retire when the battle is at the height? I'm going to fight this battle until I die. I'm not going to back down. Do I always feel like coming and fighting? No, it doesn't matter what I feel like. It matters what the job is. It matters what Jesus has called me to. Some of you love your fathers and your mothers, your husbands, your wives, your houses, your lands, and everything else on earth more than you love Jesus. Do you? Where are you in this question? I can tell what a person is in Christ if I just have a chance to look at their checkbook or their credit card statement. Where do you spend your money? Are you pouring out your resources for those who are honestly seeking the kingdom of God and pushing back the powers of darkness? Is your heart set on the kingdom of Jesus Christ and on extending that kingdom? Will you come into cooperation and partnership with us and help us by praying for us, by writing encouraging letters? We've begged you, please just write us a letter and tell us what Jesus has done for you. Instead, we get nasty mail. Instead, I get literally hundreds of harassing phone calls. I praise God I'm counted worthy to harass. I praise God I'm counted worthy of getting nasty mail from people who listen to this broadcast and become very angry. Praise God I'm counted worthy to be persecuted. Where are the rest of you? Your 
AOL. Missing in action. I don't know what more to say. Many of you studiously bring up your children for th from age three or four to the age of 18 or 20, grinding into your children every day of their lives for six to eight hours a day how to get on and up in this world. But when Jesus Christ wants one of them, especially if, if he or she happens to be smart and clever to do things with their mind, The world says they have a great prospect for success and instead they turn and take up the cross of Christ. You're disappointed. Many are training their children to go to hell. Worldly children. God gave them to you to raise as Christians and you've raised them to be lukewarm, cold-hearted consumers of the world. We're saying these things to you today because we love you and because we are utterly committed to the kingdom of God and to pushing back the powers of darkness. We want you to join us in this effort. We have just a minute left. Anything you'd like to share? I just thank you all for listening. And you can listen to this message again at nationalprayerchapel.com. That's nationalprayerchapel.com. We've been sharing today from a message by Catherine Booth called Popular Christianity, It's Cowardly Service Versus the Real Warfare. Join us again tomorrow from 1 to 2 p.m. And you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at National Prayer Chapel. God bless you. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. We're Ray and Alexandra Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. We love you. We'll talk to you soon. Falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy.